Last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with the subject of where is God, uh, sorry, how God sees us and what happens when we encounter him. Can I have the house lights on, please? What do, what's our perspective or what's God's perspective of us? And eventually we will take a look at what our perspective of him is. But in this little series, I've realized why this is so important. And I'm just reminding you, if you're wondering why we, we're hearing this already, we know some of this stuff. Of course you do. But there's a longer history of a, I'd say, uh, an incomplete or false perspective that's been taught about who God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit really is. And none of us have it all. No one church, group, person, individual has it all correct. It's impossible. That's why we need the whole body of Christ. We learn from one another. And so I'm looking at church history, and I'm realizing, oh my goodness, there is a clear message sent through the hierarchy of churchianity that has sent a picture to believers that God is not approachable or safe. Or even worse, that God the Father is very different than God the Son, Jesus. And that's been displayed through history for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, the stuff I'm trying to point out Listen, if you've been hearing the wrong message for so long, or let me say, a different message for a long time, it may be hard to take in a revised perspective, and repetition's critical. So last time, we ended up talking about um, how God sees us and seeing certain perspectives in Scripture that point out, hey, this is how God views us as clean, righteous, pure, holy, forgiven. And uh, so this is kind of like, what's God's response to us all? What has he done for us as a humanity? And that's a big topic. So I'm going to just finish that up, and then we're going to deal with what was God's response to individuals. So last time we looked at this, 2 Peter 1, 8, 9. It said, the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, I think, is where many people get stuck. Because I know for sure, and I've got the inadequacy feelings and, and stuff running through my head that I feel, sometimes I feel like unproductive and useless in my knowledge of who God is. How, how can I grasp all this? There's so much to learn. Who's right? How do I handle all this? Oh, wow. And the unlearning is much harder than the learning. Because sometimes we get a, a new understanding of a certain text, and, and now we have to fit it into what we thought we understood. Anybody have that issue? Yeah. It's okay. In fact, it's okay to believe something for a long time, discover there's a perhaps a better perspective that almost nullifies what you had seen, and it's okay to have gone through that because that's your path of how you're going to learn. And don't knock somebody else for it. Where I have been in error in the past, and many supposed grace folks, is it's more about being right and the other group being wrong. That is not the gospel. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. Of course, I'm not going to teach something that I think is wrong as, okay, do you know what I mean? I'm not going to do that. But I'm also going to be careful now, more careful, of allowing God to take care of those areas that I don't see anymore or an under, how I interpret a certain text, let's say, and now I'm going to enjoy the freedom of where I'm at right now. I'm not going to worry about it. 
All I can do is invite other people in. This next text is one of the big transitioning points. This next text is one of the greatest grace verses that helps you and I know who we really are in Christ and how God sees us. This to me is one of the pinnacles, one of the big mountaintops of, wow, can never, ever, ever, I can't ever forget this text. And I'm going to show you in Galatians 2.20. It is God who gives us the faith to believe. The uh, King James Bible, if you have a King James Bible, this is what it says. Listen carefully. I am crucified with Christ. Stop there. This isn't, you can be crucified with Christ. You might be. You will be. It says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh Listen to this. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Other translations will tell you, I will live by faith in the Son of God. New NIV does that. And NASB does that. A whole bunch of translations do that. It is incorrect. Young's literal translation, look it up. Just look up Bible Gateway or some some translations, and you can put like four or five translations side by side and compare. But Young's literal translation says, I live by Son of God faith. That's the faith I live by. Not my own. I live by His faith, which has been given to us as a gift, which kind of poo-poos the whole evangelism push that I've traditionally been involved in where we get people to believe. You can't get people to believe. Sorry, front row. You can't. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in that person, and you can't even muster that up. When the light comes on, the light comes on, period. You can't make people's light come on. And some of the stuff I've seen in evangelism circles and trying to change people, it's manipulation. Get them to say a prayer to make them more like us, and then you give them crap when they don't act like it. Hmm. No, that's not the body of Christ. I'm going to show you another translation that I think is really, really good. It's called the Passion Translation. Same verse, beautifully written. And again, this is how God sees you. His word clarifying you have been crucified with Christ. Watch this. My old identity has been co-crucified with Messiah and no longer lives. For the nails of his cross crucified me with him. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the anointed one lives his life through me. We live in union. Oh, I love that. There's not enough talk about union. I live in union as one. My new life is empowered by the faith of the Son of God who loves me so much that he gave himself for me and dispenses his life into mine. It's a beautiful paraphrase. But when you take a look at some of the Greek words that it's being translated from, this is the message it's trying to say. 
You have been. And what this does, it takes the old churchianity of self-effort to try to become something, to become right with God, to try and please God out of efforts and, and works and stuff, which, by the way, there is room for works and effort. But when your motivation is to become somebody you already are, and you're blind to it, then all the stuff we do called religion, the religious stuff, and I'll clarify that in a second, um, that becomes null and void when we discover he is wanting to live his life through us. And all we're called to do is rely on him. And when we rely on him, yield to him, trust him as our life, and he'll make that belief stronger in us constantly as the hunger in us grows. Then we start to live this out. Then we find out what real religion is. We get the word religion from the Latin word religare, to bind up. And so there's two ways to see this. You can see religion as a system of rules binding people up. So people ask, are you into religion? Nope, I'm not religious. (laughs) And yet, a more fundamental understanding of religion is those common beliefs that we hold together. And I, I think if you look through Scripture and you see what does religion and what's, what is it supposed to look like, it is feeding the poor, welcoming the foreigners, loving, helping, healing. It is the actual relationship one-on-one, face-to-face, God in us to others. That's true religion. But somehow we've made tradition, the tradition of religion a system of rules to try and control people's behaviors because we do not trust the Holy Spirit to do that. So we have to have a system in place to make sure behaviors are controlled because, you know, the Holy Spirit's not strong enough to get our attention. Pause. Is there room for instruction and rules? Yes. But when those instructions and rules are about becoming righteous, then it's wrong. They're not correct. But instead, if those systems of rules and guidance are about discipling and helping people grow up, just like we have young kids. You know, they they have different stages of life. You have to guide and direct them. They need instruction. They need guiding. They need tutoring. That's what the law was. The law was a tutor to help us until we fully rely on, on Christ alone. There is room for that. What Paul was doing in the New Testament, he was not giving laws. He was giving commands that are good for you and I. Follow them. For if you don't, the sin you're running into, that will punish you. Not God. There are consequences to really dumb mistakes and and not listening. Get wise counsel. Listen to those who have gone before. There's value to that. That includes listening to those who have grown in faith, too, and the lessons they've learned. If you meet a person that's never, ever, ever changed what they believe about who God is, and there are a few, they just that's it. They, I believe that since I was 10. No, I haven't changed anything. Don't get counsel from them. Really, Run. Because if you have not had the chance to wrestle and take mommy and daddy's faith as a 10-year-old, 15-year-old, whatever it is, and make it your faith, and never had to wrestle, whose faith is it? It's a good question. You have been crucified. 
You are a new creation. This is the best news. You and I have been made new. We, need to, we, we just need this reminder always. So what was God's response to certain individuals? See, God, living his life through the man, Jesus, <laughs> he, he bumped into a number of people. And some of their interactions may surprise you. That's what I found. I, I really hope I can rip through these. I'll try to go quick so I don't have to have this last number of weeks because this, this, there's some good stuff here. But this first story of the Samaritan woman in John 4 is beautiful. As soon as a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. Duh. <laughs> she didn't really say that, but I could just, I just hear her brain going, why? Are you? She says, why are you asking me for a drink? This is uncustomary. This is non-traditional. It was Jesus who initiated the conversation. Jesus initiated it, not the woman. There are other times where uh, other people initiated the conversation, which is great. He ends up speaking to her, talking to her about, you know, I can give you living water. Long story short, he says, go get your husband. Then she says, I haven't got a husband. Or the man I'm with now is not my husband. Or no, no, she says, I haven't got a husband right now. And Jesus says, and the man you're with now isn't your husband either. She's had multiple husbands. So in, in I guess, almost every society, that becomes a, a subject of, hmm, you're on your ninth spouse? Really? Do you see a pattern problem here? <laughs> like, it, it's a shunned thing. And he, Jesus knew full well, because his father revealed it to him, what this woman has been doing and how she's been living. She's been living from the bondage of shame. He wasn't talking about water as in actual water. He's talking about living water that will wash away the shame that comes from inside. And it takes truth to be spoken into something that is not true. And then it, it washes it away. Truth does win out. But the compassion of Jesus to one person, and then one person who gets it, guess what happened to her? She ran back to her village, said, hey, I've just met a man who told me everything I ever did. Well, it's not in the story. I don't remember Jesus giving all the list of mistakes or life history. He didn't do that. But whatever the conversation was, Jesus revealed to her the behaviors are not who you are. It's where you've been, and you can start fresh today because I am bringing you life. I am the Messiah, he tells her. It's interesting because now the whole village uh, comes. Uh, oh, no, hang on. Before the village comes, this is really cool. I never saw this before. Meanwhile, the disciples, they, they came back, and they saw Jesus sitting there, and uh, they, they were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have the kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Did you give him a sandwich? No, he probably stole some from my sack. Nothing like that. Like, we don't know. But there is something powerful that goes on when you are speaking to somebody, and Jesus was doing this, he saw the light go on in her. He sensed true light in her, and the hope that was flowing out of her, he could see. That was his food. 
There are some times where um, we're doing buffets and church luncheons or I get home and I'm pretty excited about something that happened or whatever. I'm just not hungry. I'm so excited about what has just happened of how somebody got a revelation of God that I don't know how they heard it from me or whatever, but they, they say they caught it or whatever. And that is food to the spirit. It's like, wow, thank you for letting me participate in that. I can just see Jesus going crazy, going, oh, that was so cool. No, I'm not hungry. Hold on. Yeah. He's just excited. Yes, Jesus got excited. Don't use the pictures you see from history of uh, the quiet, boring Jesus, you know, walking like this, yes, bless you, yes, yes. <sighs> I think they got it wrong, but they also portray wrong pictures of who the Son of God is. Remember, you and I were created in His image. And right now, looking in this room with all the personality types, quiet, loud, crazy, not sure, you know, all, all that, that is a reflection, listen, of Jesus. That's how he created us, to work together. So we as a body become a reflection of the Son of God through our individual unique journeys. And later, Jesus came to the village and they asked Jesus to stay and he stayed for two days continuing to share the good news. And many, many people came to believe Jesus was the Messiah. All because he asked for some water. He knew her need. That's grace. Next, we have the story of a crippled beggar in John uh, 5. Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. And inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethsaida. The five cornered with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? Can you imagine being asked that if you've been sick that long? Do you want to get well? Hmm. Careful with your answer. He deflected. He sidestepped the question. He may have fully understood what Jesus was saying, but that can't be possible. And so he right away rabbit trails to something else. But I've been here for so long. That's not what I asked you. I see the same problem today. People are in spin cycles in life, personal problems, Work problems, relationship problems. Do you want to get well? I don't think many people do. They enjoy the attention they get from spreading their doom and gloom and sad stories of, oh, I've been, I'm, you know, how are you doing today? Oh, you know, same problem. Yeah, I want to hang out with you. You know, like, this is the kind of pattern that builds, if not challenged. Please don't ever let that pattern consume you. Hear Jesus' words today when he says, do you want to get well? There are answers. There are ways, and there is hope. Sir, the sick man said, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else gets in there ahead of me. Apparently there was a belief that an angel would stir the water, first one in gets, uh, gets healed. And it's a super, super deep thing, so it's not like the, you have a couple steps. It's like, 
boom, <laughs> cliff. It's really, really, really deep. Yeah. And if you can't walk, that'd be scary. <laughs> so instantly, well, sorry, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. That's it. He saw past the excuse. This is important. I just finished telling you how we can see people's complaint lists and we can see all the flesh responses and they don't really want to get well, but they do, but they enjoy the attention and all that stuff. We can focus on that, but Jesus blew past that and saw the Spirit for who they really are. We can do that too. We can see past people's problems and see them as one in Christ, needing hope. Be the hope. Be kind. And Jesus sees through and heals that man. What I find extra interesting, because some of our individuals say Jesus healed everybody. He did not. He healed that one guy at the whole pool. He could have gone, okay, yo, y'all, all five things, get up, walk, you're all good. Party's on me, let's go. You know, we're going to meet down at the synagogue and, you know, tell the Pharisees and show us healed. Come on, everybody, let's go. Would not that be cool? He could have done that and got everybody's attention and they would have all radically believed. Oh my goodness, we're talking a crowd healing. Why didn't he do that? I don't know. He saw one man. And I think that's important for us today to realize you are an individual whom God sees. You're not just a crowd. Oh, he, he loves the Christians. No. He just loves the world, you know, everybody. That's true. But he loves you. Specifically you. And he cares. And I thought that was, that's a cool takeaway from that healing story. And then, then he has to, um, has to go and explain himself in the temple. Um... Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping bag and mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath of all days. Seriously, you don't heal on the Sabbath. Like, sorry, sucks to be you. Wait till Monday. No, he did on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. Somebody's caught up in law. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath because he picked up his mat which you're not allowed to do. It's considered work. You can't even spit on the ground because that's called tilling or gardening. Seriously, it really is a rule. It's so interesting. (laughs) The law doesn't allow you to carry your sleeping mat, but when he replied, the man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus disappeared. Into the crowd. Can you, I just see them. Oh, here they come. Guys, let's just clear because look, this is going to happen. <laughs> I can just see it. There's so much joy in this story. But afterwards, Jesus found the man in the temple and told him, you are well. So, stop sinning. I thought Jesus was a grace teacher. Yes. So stop sinning. Stop doing those things that harm you. Stop doing these harmful relationship things that keep, you keep repeating. Stop it. It's not good for you. 
He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Interesting. Grace is not the license to go sin. Grace, true grace, is not about bucking rules and living from freedom. Grace is about living in absolute dependence in Christ, letting him be the law in your heart. That's different than lawlessness. You're now under the law of the life of Christ in you. Listen to that voice. Oh, wait, maybe we need to learn to hear his voice. A hemorrhaging woman, Mark 5. Okay, okay this, is, this is like Mike's interpretation of what I thought could have happened because it just I, I have a more hopeful picture of a, a Jesus who actually cares and, and will, will show some personality. And if it doesn't show it outside, I think inside he might have been thinking this. So there's a woman that uh, touches him while he's in a crowd and uh, gets healed of her bleeding. And... Uh, um, so she, she heard about Jesus being a healer, so she ends up sneaking in and touching him. And when she did, her bleeding stopped immediately. She could feel in her body that she'd been healed of a terrible condition. Jesus realized at once. It's like he's walking and talking, touching. What? Who touched me? Uh, disciples, Jesus, seriously, we're in a crowd of people. Somebody's going to touch you. Hello? No, 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 no. There was a special touch because I felt power leave me. Somebody believed. Somebody got healed. Who is it? Let's find this person. That's exciting. I want to know who this was. I want to connect with this person who believed enough to get healed. Well, that sure scared the lady because she could hear it. but he kept looking around to see who'd done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. I'm sorry I touched you. (laughs) I don't know what she said. (laughs) You can see the trembling. Something life-changing happened. And for her, it changed her life forever, for the rest of her life. And he replied to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Do we ever get to say that to people who are hurting? Go in peace. Your suffering is over. You bail them out of a situation, whatever it may be. Here, your suffering for that situation is over. Go in peace. Whose peace? The peace of Christ. We are the peacemakers. We can make peace. Every single person here can make peace because the peace of Christ is in you already. You can create peace to others by the life of Christ in you. You've got to have your eyes open. Watch for the opportunities to come. Well, how does, how does God handle rejects? Hated by the society. Let's see how Jesus handled two people. First one, in Matthew 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his, at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. 
So Matthew got up and followed him. I can never understand that. I, I can't understand how this was written. Is it just a summary of the story? Was it literally the timing? Do we know what else may have happened? Had he had exposure to Jesus before? Or was this a cold turkey first call? You know, cold call? Knock, knock. Hi, come follow me. Uh, what? I don't know. I have a funny feeling it wasn't. I think he may have heard of Jesus. I'm guessing because we don't know. But Jesus knew exactly what that man represented. Hated and scorned because, first of all, the Jews can't stand the traitors, the ones who gave up their Jewishness to take the money from them and give it to the Romans. They knew right well they're being overtaxed, robbing them. And Jesus knew this because that's what everybody knew. And guess what he did? He didn't, Jesus didn't see the guy and go, I'll just talk to him later. You'll get saved in the end, maybe. I don't know if you believe hard enough. He didn't do that. Called him. I want you to be a disciple. You represent the exact group of people I've come to seek and save. That's who Jesus surrounded himself with. Do we surround ourselves at all with people like that? We tend to hang out with those more like us. Nothing wrong with that. It's about the lens of judging and how we see each other. That's what I think Jesus is doing. A little later, he, um, he does something wild. There's a short man stuck in a tree as he's walking along. And uh, he could have just kept walking, but the guy's right there. And he, Stops, looks up, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to eat at your house. I know you didn't invite me, but I'm coming. And he ends up going into the tax collector's house. And he was a chief tax collector. As in, he knew how to get the money. He probably trained all the other tax collectors. Like, and they probably had to give him a slim little margin off of their cuts too. And it just goes up the trail like that. That's just how it worked. I'm going to be a guest in your home today. And Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and, and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people, the people were displeased. He has gone to the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. So this is the crowd walking with Jesus, wanting to hear. And they're ticked that Jesus decided to go hang out with clearly riffraff. You know, clearly known sinners. <laughs> Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Something happens when people authentic, authentically encounter Jesus, the real Jesus. Not the religious historical person, but the life-giving Christ. When people have a revelation in their mind and are awakened to the truth of who he is, there is a change that happens inside. This is evidence of even the chief of sinners, <laughs> so to speak, or chief tax collector, known notorious sinner. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, 
For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Lost. Are there a lot of lost people in our world today? You betcha. If I lose my wedding ring, which I have in the past, um, if I lose that, whose is it? Mine. But it's lost. If I find it, it's still mine. Something has to have an owner for it to be lost, or it's not lost. That's why Jesus so often speaks about lost and found, blind, seeing, those who can't see, that their eyes will be opened. This is the lens of Jesus and how he responded to individuals. He always showed kindness and grace. Not one story so far do you hear Jesus trying to teach systematic theology. Well, this is how the gospel works. You need to understand what happened to the cross. You need to understand what uh, transubstantiationism. We do all this other stuff. You have to, not, you have to understand the Romans road. You, got, you have to understand all these things. That is not at all what Jesus did. Maybe we have messed it up in the Western church and we're so much about theology and trying to be correct. We don't even know how to love people anymore. Until you become like a child, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. It has to be that simple. Yeah, but it's more complicated than that. No, it isn't. The church has complicated it historically. And it's through the same church individuals have kept it simple. So when I say the church, we're talking the whole body, even the ones we don't like, the ones we disagree with, all that stuff. We're still the church. Be careful, be kind. This whole Zacchaeus thing, that's big. So, yeah, big sinner like that's pretty bad, but what about this one? The adulterous woman caught. You know this one really well. Technically caught right in the act, which is awkward to begin with. And then dragged out in front of men. More awkward. Shame, shame, shame. Can you hear the shame? Constant shame. I've had many people talk about this story and always ask the question, where's the guy? It takes two, baby, it takes two. Okay, anyway, never mind. Ha, ha, ha. But they picked on her. And they crowded around with their stones, ready to stone her, because the law said, the law said, she is to be stoned. And we don't know what Jesus wrote, but he began writing something in the ground. Maybe he was doodling, we don't know. I just don't know. Maybe he wrote a Bible verse. We're just not sure. They didn't have Bible verses. But whatever it was, listen carefully, the oldest left first. The youngest left last. What does that tell you? There's something about the historical journey. Those who are well-schooled and they, they have wisdom. Not, age doesn't give you wisdom, but you have a lot more opportunity for it. And they left first. And finally, there's nobody left and Jesus sees her and says, hey, where are your accusers? I have none. No one to condemn me. He says, then Jesus reached down and helped her up. He says, neither do I condemn you. Jesus did not 
condemn her. And then he says something to her as well. He he said, go and sin no more. Basically saying, I didn't create you for this pain. Stop living like that. I've made you better than that. We have to be able to see past people's pain. The pain, the behaviors are not who they are. It's how they've come to cope and survive through much hurt. Jesus never condemned her. Let's not do the same. Nicodemus, a true seeker. This is wild. A religious leader. Okay, we just heard about religious leaders saying to Jesus, what the heck are you doing on the Sabbath? They're, they're attacking him. They're constantly grinding him, giving him a hard time, right? That's the religious leaders. Here comes a religious leader authentically seeking to understand. And guess what Jesus does? You're one of those Pharisee guys. Get lost. You've given me a hard time all day. He didn't do that. To the authentic seeker, he welcomed it. In fact, they met at night. So, hey, I'm going to respect your privacy. Let's, let's talk. Huh. Stay open for healthy conversations with those who disagree with you. If they're willing to have an honest, heart-to-heart talk through, be open for that. It's not about being right and you're right, they're wrong, or they're right and you're wrong. It's not about that. It's about the relationship and connecting and wrestling through a better understanding of who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Holy Spirit is. It's a beautiful picture. Then Jesus says in verse 16 of John 3, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And get this, then he tags this on, which is now a pattern in light of the verses I've shared with you. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That's why we're told not to judge one another. This is not about condemnation. This is about salvation, sozo, healing is what that word means, healed. Lastly, yes. Thomas. I love this part. So one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, looks like that nickname, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers in them and place my hand into his side. I ain't going to believe it. Not going to happen. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. You would freak out, I would freak out. Okay? Yes? Be honest. But can I have a freak out, God? Can, can you, I'd love for him to do that again. Like, give us a really cool wow. All right, it's still been a prayer since I was young. All right. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, as if he heard it, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand to the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. So Thomas, the doubter, you know what? He's, he, he represents many, 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 many people. 
struggling with faith. How much of this do I believe? How do I know, how do I know God's actually real? What about, which is the right gospel? All that stuff. I believe God has a special heart for those where he seeks them out because he cares about them too. And that's what he did here. He knew Thomas was a doubter. He invited him to be a disciple. He heard, however he did. I don't know how we found out, but that's being son of God has some privileges, I guess. And then he shows up and does exactly that to Thomas. Seeks him out because your doubt can be healed. Let me show you. There are some who need miracles in order to blast past whatever wall is up. There is a need for them, and there is room, and miracles do happen, however we describe them. And there are others who believe without having to have the miracle. I believed without having to have a miracle, but it would be really cool to see one. (laughs) Really. I'm I'm good with that if he does. (laughs) But he cares about those who doubt. He took enough time off after the cross to single out Thomas. This is the heart of your God. Jesus is exactly the same as the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He and I are one. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we have two figures that come down. What are their names? Do you remember? Moses and Elijah are transfigured and and Jesus is in the middle. And a voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And God says, listen to my son. From here on, this is who you listen to. This is big. So when we see these stories and hear these stories and find nuggets of grace and compassion and kindness and goodness, that's your heavenly Father who's exactly the same as the Son, who's exactly the same as the Holy Spirit, living out grace and truth. Don't see God the Father as different, distant, upset, finicky. He's not. That's why Jesus came to correct the minds of the people of who the Father is. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, will you create in us a hunger to know you better? Not just know you better, but understand you better. We've got a lot of knowledge, lots of information in our heads, on our computers. There's no lack of the knowledge, but there's very little understanding. Would you please activate your Holy Spirit in us and draw us to further and deeper, more joy-filled, hope-filled understanding of your grace and love towards us, but also the entire world. Thank you, Father. Amen. So earlier I put my Bible down on the thingy and just opened it. No place at a particular. And uh, so I grabbed it real quick because a verse came to my head i got to share with you. And it was open to that chapter. 
That's crazy. Amen. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't. And life can't. Angels can't. And the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's why we want the revelation to come to people. We want them to have their eyes open so the revelation of Christ and his love opens up in them. But nothing can separate us. That's pretty cool. It's a great way to end it. Thank you so much for coming.